Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Friends in Fiction. I'm Mary Kay Andrews. And I'm Kristen Harmel. And this is the Friends in Fiction show for New York Times bestselling authors. Now, I should stop and remind you that we kind of changed things up in the new year. So just tonight, it's Kristen and I, but the other ladies will be back with us. Um, anyway, for New York Times bestselling authors, two tonight, endless stories <laughs> to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. On this week's show, Kristen and I are thrilled to welcome bestselling authors Kate Quinn and Janie Chang to discuss their new novel, The Phoenix Crown. The book was just released <laughs> yesterday, and we can't wait to discuss it with them. We both loved it. We're so excited to dig in. But first, we want to wish everyone out there a happy Valentine's Day and tell you that we hope you've spent the day with someone you love or better yet, with a book you love. We all know about falling in love with books, right? Um, also, we have just a quick reminder to check out all the fun things going on in our friends and fiction community at friendsandfiction.com. There you will find our show schedule, details on upcoming in-person events, and links to our bookshop.org page, to the Friends and Fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa page, to our merch store, to our book subscription box, and our weekly email newsletter sign up. In other words, if you want to know more about anything Friends and Fiction related, anything we offer, and we offer a lot, be sure to check out friendsandfiction.com. Now let's welcome Kate Quinn and Janie Chang. Kate Quinn is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of historical fiction. She wrote four novels in the Empress of Rome saga and two books in the Italian Renaissance before turning to the 20th century with The Alice Network, The Huntress, The Rose Code, and The Diamond Eye. All have been translated into multiple languages. A native of Southern California, Kate attended Boston University, and she and her husband now live in San Diego with three rescue dogs. Janie Chang writes historical fiction, often with a personal connection, drawing from a family history with an astounding 36 generations of recorded genealogy. That is just so incredible. Her first novel, Three Souls, was a finalist for the British Columbia Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. And her second novel, Dragon Springs Road, was a Globe and Mail national bestseller. Her third book, The Library of Legends, was nominated for an Evergreen Award and is also a Globe and Mail national bestseller. She's a graduate of the Writer's Studio at Simon Fraser University. Born in Taiwan, Janie now lives with her husband on the beautiful Sunshine Coast of British Columbia, Canada. Katie, Kate, sorry, Kate and Janie's new co-written novel, The Phoenix Crown. It, see, I was just giving them like their their team name, yeah. Katie. Yeah. Does that work? Yeah. Katie, I don't know. But their new co-written novel, which we are so excited about, The Phoenix Crown, was just released yesterday. Okay, now let's talk to Kate, to Kate and Janie, instead of about them. Alan, will you bring them on, please? 
Hi, ladies. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. There is so good to be here. We are thrilled. (laughs) We're very glad to have you. So thank you so much. There is a lot to talk about. So let's get started. Of course, the first question on anybody's mind, if you've ever worked on a book, is how the heck you get two authors to collaborate (laughs) in a novel? And I gotta, I gotta believe that the arrangement is doubly complex when the subject is historical fiction. Ladies, would you tell us how the partnership came about and how you divided up the work? And were you able to be in the same place physically at any point while you worked on the book? Kate, let's start with you. Well, I guess you could say the for the germ of the idea came from me. I had always been interested in writing a book about the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and the fallout from that since, you know, so much of the city was destroyed in the fires that came after. And the more I was looking at it at this incredibly rich period, the more that I thought, you know, the thing is, I know what I would write here. I wanted to write an opera singer heroine because there's a famous opera performance the night before the city is destroyed. And I, you know, got my degree actually in studying opera before I, you know, somehow became a historical novelist. (laughs) So that was easy for me, but I thought what this book really needs is a Chinatown heroine. And I can feel that it just, it just did because there is such so much in Chinatown of San Francisco's history. And it's such a big part of San Francisco, but it seemed to me like a lot of the fiction of the time didn't cover it except maybe tangentially. And I thought, I, I wonder if this Janie, are you interested in this, this period of history at all? I was very glad that she said yes. So uh, when Kate first approached me about this, I said, well, um, let me do a quick bit of research on Chinatown during um, the 1906 earthquake. And let me get back to you. And within like five minutes, I was saying, wow, there was a lot going on historically. Um, There was, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act. There was the fact that um, all these Chinese were sort of living in this area for protection and safety. And the status of women at that time was very, very difficult. So as we all know, when writing fiction, we want a bit of conflict, some challenges and struggles to make for a good story. And then I said to Kate, but the other thing is, I want to make sure we come out of it still friends. (laughs) (laughs) That was really our primary goal, other than we're going to come out with a book we're proud of, and we were still going to have a friendship that was intact. So we really approached this with a lot of... um, care and respect really because you know we already not only being friends but we are huge admirers of each other's work and we really made sure to approach this with how are we comfortable working together how do we want to do this and we really crafted the book with nothing more than the idea at start of I'm, we're going to have two very different women. You will have your heroine do what you want with her. I will have my heroine. I have some ideas to do with her and we will throw them together and we're going to see what happens. And that might sound at first like we don't didn't we didn't plan it out at all. And that wouldn't be true. We planned this within a hair of its life and Google spreadsheets played a huge amount. And I'd say that's one reason we ended up working together very well is that Janie and I are both firm believers that a well-organized spreadsheet will fix anything. So this is plotted out quite literally in Google spreadsheet, in a Google spreadsheet where you know, I had all the even chapters. She had all the odd. We alternated back, uh, back and forth, you know, between the points of view of our two heroines and 
in each uh, spreadsheet category, we all, we knew, you know, how much time passes in this chapter, what happens. So that way that if the other person needed to work ahead a little bit, they knew what was going to come before their chapter. And then we would, you know, pretty much as soon as we were done, you know, toss our chapter up in a shared Google Drive so the other person could read it. And that is very vulnerable, yeah. I have to say, because, you know, you're writers, you get this. The whole idea of showing someone your rough draft, like before, when it's just come out of your head onto yes. the page. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think I would rather be seen in my underwear <laughs> by someone uh, someone see my rough draft. So that took a little adjustment, but soon it got very exciting because it was almost to feel like we were catching the enthusiasm from each yeah. other. And like you, like we were throwing pieces of the story back and forth over a fence. So that was how we did that part. Although there were some in-person meetings as well. Yes. Tell us about so, that. We did some research together, right? Right, Jane? Oh, well, yes, we had a wonderful time in San Francisco doing research. Um, and what happened was we also used a spreadsheet <laughs> because this was just after COVID. So not everything was open all the time. And we actually had a spreadsheet for which days and which hours various museums and historic houses were open. So we were just trying to cram in as much <laughs> as we could of sightseeing and also, you know, the actual research part of it. We went to the California Academy of Sciences where the wonderful librarians there do we love like librarians or what were hauling cartloads of stuff for us out of their archives. And we were actually looking at, you know, the, the log entries and diaries of someone that we wanted to write about. And it just sends shivers up your spine and it saved us from a couple of really stupid mistakes too. And, um, we visited, as <laughs> we visited two amazing historic houses where through friends of friends um, who knew the curators there, we got to do an after hours behind the scenes tour of these mansions, one of which went on for like four hours, Kate. We got to see rooms no. that they normally do not show the public. And not we had not one but two curators who were, they were geeking out historically, and we were geeking out even more because we are just, you know, such history nerds. So we had a wonderful time. And then here's proof positive that, when you're writing historical fiction, you run across a nugget of something and it completely changes you or what you're going to do for the story. And what happened here was we went to see an exhibit by Guo Pei, who's the Chinese couturier, and she does these fabulous fantasy embroidery type um, um, outfits. And, you know, there's... I guarantee you see her stuff on like the Met Gala yeah. red carpet. Oh, okay. that yeah. kind of thing. And so by the time we were done, it was like, can we make our heroine Suling not just like an embroideress, but like this master embroideress, someone who is like does such exquisite work that then it is able to change her life, you know? Or yeah. So it was um and we had fun. We had a really good time together. <laughs> We did a couple of plotting sessions together as well and an editing session because I was spending a lot of my time and still am uh, in the Pacific Northwest. My husband had a transfer there uh, from the Navy that was less uh, temporary than we thought. So <laughs> I spent a lot of time going back and forth to the PAC Northwest. So I was close enough to Janie that we were about a two 
our uh, drive oh, apart. Perfect. So therefore, we met a couple of times for plotting sessions. We met a couple of times to actually write or to edit. And uh, at the very final bit, when we had to make our changes, we literally like got a hotel room in uh, in Vancouver and just holed up for about three days. Wow. And a lot of you, know, we, we went out for like snacks, which we garbled, <laughs> gathered in, you know, like squirrels gathering nuts. Then we retreated to this room and just hold up and did all of our edits. And it was a great way to work. And uh, I am pleased to report that we are still friends by the end of it. <laughs> I love that. And you note that in the author's note too, which I also really liked that like that was, that was one of the big triumphs of the book is that your friendship has survived intact, which I love. So Kate, I could not help but notice that Gemma is an operatic soprano and having had the pleasure of hearing you sing myself, I know that you are also a phenomenal singer. So you mentioned in your author's note that Gemma's character was partially inspired by a college voice professor you once had. But I found myself wondering as I was reading if there's a little bit of you in Gemma too, especially when she channels her emotions into her singing. And when, I mean, just it felt so personal, the times that she talked about what singing meant to her and, and what having that voice meant to her. So can you talk a little bit about that and how it felt to you to write a character who had that in common with you? Well, I, from the beginning, I knew I wanted this to be an operatic singer for a heroine. And I always have wanted to write one because I have this background. And, you know, since I trained as a voice in voice performance and as an opera opera singer um, for two degrees when I was at Boston University. And, um, you know, it, it really was fun for, first of all, just because I finally had a heroine who did something that I already knew something about. Because <laughs> yes. we all know what it's like when you're like your heroine has some sort of profession that is not only something you're completely ignorant of, but something you are not good at at all. Had, had so you, it's like, how, had you not been I a sniper in a, in a previous <laughs> career, Kate? Was, was that not something yeah, you'd done? Or like the, the heroine is good at something technical yeah. and mathy, and I'm not technical and mathy, so it's like, why did I do this to myself? But here, finally, no, my student loans were coming out of the corner, like, yes, our hour has finally arrived. <laughs> Um, so it was a lot of fun to write something I knew something about, first of all. And I did base Gemma quite a bit on my wonderful voice professor I had through Boston University through all my years there. And she really did come from a small town in Nebraska, which she called Willa Cather Country, where um, and she where she had this you know glorious voice and ended up using that voice to get out of Nebraska and ended up singing all over the all over the great opera houses of Europe as Queen of the Night specifically she was a high color Torah soprano and it had a wonderful voice and she's also this little blonde with these china blue eyes and still is a wonderful friend of mine her and her husband who was her pianist for a long period and a wonderfully sensitive piano player and they're both wonderful friends of mine and I, I asked her for, for help on you know making sure I got any of the details right that I did not have for in terms of you know what an opera uh, house would have been like, you know, when it's rehearsing and so forth. But yes, there is definitely something of Gemma in me too. Um, her voice specifically is uh, actually rather like mine. I don't sing quite as high as she did. I never quite got into Queen of the Night territory. I might have gotten there eventually, but she's has the kind of voice that I do where it's specifically the Mozart, Strauss, the lighter Italians. Um, it was great to work the way a lot of my own thoughts about music into it. You do absolutely use your own emotions yeah. to fuel it, but you have to do it carefully because singing is very, very physical. And there was one thing that I thought was great, which I had always read about where there was a singer who 
there was a singer at this time who actually has a cameo in this book. She was the star of Carmen, which is the performance right before the earthquake. She literally trained her lungs by going for a jog in I Central Park in that. New York. And she, um, and she would hold her breath as she was jogging and see how many lampposts she could cross. Oh. And that was how she trained her breath control. And I had my heroine do the same thing because um, let's just say that that is a skill that is going to come in handy for her at some point when this whole city starts burning down. But these, they're, you know, opera singers are wonderfully eccentric. There's all kinds of great grist you can use for that. And I think singers in particular are particularly superstitious because your voice is part of you. It's not an instrument you carry outside of you. So there's very much a little sense of like, is the voice going to cooperate today? What's the voice doing? Like, it, it does kind of feel like you have this, you're paying homage in large part to this little temperamental deity in your throat that lives in your throat. And you can't ever be entirely sure what it's going to do. <laughs> Well, you know, speaking of that, another piece of Gemma that I found really interesting was that she suffers from these migraines. So, I mean, her voice might be there, but it stops her from being able to perform. And that's something that has really um, derailed her career. I mean, she's not where she wants to be. She's in, I think she's 32, right? Or early 30s or thereabout. Um, and and she feels like she shouldn't be in the chorus line anymore, right? And, and this is kind of one of the things that has stood in her way. Can you talk a little bit about that element of her character and why it felt like something important? to address? Well, I wanted to give her, you know, a reason for why she's not a star when she yes. has a star making voice. And I really thought it would be an interesting idea to give her some sort of health problem that she struggles with because, you know, anybody with chronic health issues, it's not only the fact that it impinges on your life. It's the fact that there's this frustrated quality of, you know, well-meaning people who think, well, could you just try harder? Uh, could you, oh, I'm sure if you just would, you know, take, you know, take this medication, that'll solve your problems. Yeah. And you just keep thinking, thank you. I've tried that. Yes. Tried that too. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah try harder. I've never thought of that. Thanks so much. <laughs> and it's the idea that, and I know I've, 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 I do not suffer from migraines myself. I'm very, very fortunate that way. But I have had a number of people, including my editor, who was, you know, said, okay, I, I can absolutely be here for you for this, for a, uh, for a source who do suffer from migraines. And, you know, there's no just, well, you just power your way through it yeah. when you get a really bad migraine. It's like, there's not, that's not happening. No. The only thing you could pretty much do is lay down till it goes away. And that is not congruent with having, a life as a performer where you need to reliably be able to go on stage yeah. when you were being paid to do so. So I thought that would be a good way to, uh, you know, give Gemma an obstacle that she has to struggle with. It's not an obstacle that has a fix it yeah. uh, in place for her. And it's something that, you know, it's not her fault, but it's still something that, you know, people often treat as her fault or she suffers for it as if it is her fault regardless. And so that's something where, She's at the point where she starts to think, you know, okay, I want to, I would like a shortcut. You know, it's like, if I'm, if someone will give me a shortcut to the top of this ladder, I have struggled on this ladder for so long because of these migraines, I'm willing to take the shortcut. And that's why, you know, a man comes into her life who wants in San Francisco, who wants to be a patron of the arts and offers, I can make you a star. And she has the thought of, well, I really wanted to make myself a star, but at some point you have to think if it's ever going to happen for me, I need to take whatever opportunity I can now. And that's what makes her vulnerable to that. Well, offer. I get that 100%. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, the main characters, both the main characters, Suling and, and Gemma are so interesting and they have a fascinating story arc, but I especially love their friend, Alice Eastwood, who 
in your novel is, as in real life, was a world-famous botanist. How did, Janie, how did um, Alice find her way into the novel? Oh, good grief. It was like, how could we keep her out of the novel? She was like such an interesting person historically. You know, she threatened to take over the whole book if we let her. And the way we saw it was both Gemma and Suling are young women trying to find some agency, trying to find their way in the world, doing something they love. And here you've got Alice Eastwood, who's, you know, what, in her early 40s at this time, Kate, and she is the director of the botany department of the California Academy of Sciences. And she's a woman. I think she's a little older. It's more like late 40s. So she's really the woman who's made it. So there she is doing what she wants. And she's you know, she wears these divided skirts, basically trousers at a time um, when women are not expected to, well, there are things that are said about women who wear trousers, right? And, you know, she goes off on these adventures looking for plant samples, climbs in the Rockies and so on. So she is sort of like the shining star that lets them know something like this is possible. And of course, all those adventures that Alice had in the middle of the earthquake, they were true. She really did live in a place um, on Knob Hill that was um, supposedly not very much damaged at the first uh, first round. So she thought, well, things aren't so bad. I'm, I'm going to go off to work, gets to work, and the place is on fire because the fire destroyed more of San Francisco than the earthquake did. And to rescue her plant samples, she really does climb up the inner railing of the staircase because the rest of the staircase is not safe. And she starts, you know, like handing down 1,500 priceless, unique <laughs> samples, you know, that were the backbone of this botanical collection. And she, oh yes. And before she did that, she uh, hung up her lunch, uh, her lunch bucket on the horn of a mastodon in the lobby. And <laughs> so she was just a, a absolutely amazing. And when we got to the California Academy of Sciences, it was like, we saw this picture of Alice hanging there in their back offices and she was wearing a hat with the most extravagant flowers on it and kate and i were going we know who made the flowers for that hat. that's awesome (laughs) oh that's incredible Uh, she just came alive on the page so much i thought i mean it was a such a vibrant character and it astounding to just think that she really lived that she was really somebody who shaped her time and shaped that city Mm -hmm. Um, Janie, I think you specifically seem to have been drawn to stories that take place in the early part of the 20th century. So, for example, Dragon Springs Road, I believe, begins in 1908, Mm -hmm. and The Porcelain Moon is set in World War I France. And Kate, of course, your hugely best-selling The Alice Network, takes place partially during the First World War. Can you talk a little bit about, and of course, this book is now set between 1906 and, uh, what, where do we pick up, 1911, somewhere somewhere a few years after 1906. Um, can you talk a little bit about what continues to draw you both back to the first two decades of the last century, especially when it feels like so many writers, guilty, um, are passing those years over in favor of writing about the 1940s and beyond? What, what is it about those first two decades that appeals to you? 
All right, you're gonna you're gonna laugh at me when I tell you, but um, my first three novels were set in China, and I just could not bring myself to write about heroines with bound feet. Seriously, I just could not do it. I know Lisa okay. C does that, but um, I wanted <laughs> I wanted my heroines to be a little bit more modern, and also those are the eras you know when my when my parents and their grand and their parents grew up. So those were the family stories I heard about all the time. So that particular era and Chinese family and culture and tradition um, were something that I was really familiar with. But also at the same time, I think that, you know, the early 1900s, before the First World War, was also when the suffragette movement started heating up. And so this became a time when women were starting to ask for more agency, more rights. They were they could see a different sort of life, a different sort of um, future for themselves. And again, when we look at people who are caught in a time of social and political transition, we have so much opportunity for story, for change, for struggle. And that's actually why I'm also drawn to it. Plus, the clothes are fabulous. Okay, <laughs> I would say that. I would say that too. And just add, if I can be really shallow here, I need to have a, a, a historical period with clothes that I like, so I can envision, you know, have fun wearing them seriously, if not else. And I, having also, like Kristen, uh, done quite a number of '40s books, it's like it was so much fun to dip back yes. to this wonderful Gilded Age period. And there's no more little rayon wartime frocks. I could suddenly, I had corsets. There was silk velvet and chinchilla trim on dinner gowns without needing to get into how, you know, fur farming is a really bad thing. <laughs> we actually don't approve of it. And, you know, it's like these fabulous, you know, bustle dresses and everything. And I really had fun dressing a character who could have some great uh turn of the century gilded age like right from julian fellows dresses i love it and you know it really it felt visual like it was one of those books that you read did you feel like that mary Kay? that yeah it was one of those things that you read and you could see them you could see how they looked you could see what they were wearing yeah well i kept thinking about i knew i knew obviously that kate studied um opera and then i was wondering to myself because su ling the character that janie writes um, is, um, is just a, um, next level embroideress. Now, Janie, do you know how to sew? Ha ha. <laughs> Can we move on to the next question, please? <laughs> Let's talk about Suling a little more because I love her so much. And she comes with such a unique portion of, you know, American history, the part and time in which she grows up. Yeah. I kept thinking about our mutual friend, Jennifer Robeson, who wrote the gown. And she had to learn to embroider mm -hmm. when she was writing that book about, you know, it was Queen Elizabeth's um, wedding gown. And she, she, uh, I did an event with her and she had a sample of the embroidery that she had, she'd gone to do a class. And so I'm sorry, Janie, I think you're maybe a little bit of a slacker. Okay. okay. <laughs> but actually, um, Jen Robson gave me an idea because ah. both Kate and I, when we started researching about, you know, Kingfisher feather jewelry, um, right. for people who haven't read the book yet, the Phoenix crown refers to the type of crowns that Chinese empresses used to wear. And the most expensive item of ornamentation was not the jewels, but kingfisher feathers, which were cut and inlaid on top of um, gilt 
um, to make like little decorations because kingfisher feathers are so tiny and the birds were so rare and so on. And the, and the craftsmanship was incredible. Well, it turns out that you can go on Etsy and you can actually buy these vintage slash antique little bits of jewelry. So we each got some Kingfisher feather hairpins, and Jennifer had put her embroidery sample in a little box. Right. So I am also going to be putting my little hair, uh, Kingfisher feather hairpins in a little box and taking it on tour. And that's oh, cool. going to be our show and tell for people who come to our book events. That's a, oh, and I actually have one I can show you here. It was within yeah. arm's distance of where I'm what sitting. This is what a kingfisher oh, wow. feather hairpin would look like. Oh, that's you see awesome. the vibrancy of the blue. That's a pin that would just go into like a knot of hair. It's a seed pearl, and uh, yeah, that's something I did buy. I think off of you know an Etsy dealer somewhere, and you know that was a fun discussion to be having with spouses. It's like we have to, for the sake of research. <laughs> buy some really beautiful antique jewelry because you know, it's tax write-off, right? I mean, I need this, honey. Yes. I, I absolutely do. You know, ladies, what draws readers like me to both of your works is your believably drawn strong women characters. And, you know, I underlined a passage in the Phoenix crown from Alice where she ruminates while thinking about her two friends, Gemma and Su Ling. And she says, it wasn't enough for a woman to be talented or clever or good. That wouldn't save her. And um, that, I mean, I just stopped and stared at that line for a long time. And I'm wondering, are there real life role models besides Alice that who inspired these characters for you all? I think, you know, for, you know, I already talked a bit about how my voice teacher inspired this a bit. And I am impressed by anyone who can make a living on the stage. I mean, it, it is such a chancy, difficult profession. And that is in the modern day when at least we have modern amenities, modern rights to help pave the way to some degree in, you know, forging an independent life. But a woman forging an independent life on a career on the stage with a career and trying to, you know, gain financial security for herself. That is so hard. And I really look back to, you know, any of the women artists uh, and, you know, of the stage of the opera world from this time and earlier, because what a hard way to make a living and yet to be devoted to your art and to try to be making great art, but at the same time, making a world for yourself where you're safe. And that is, that is really tough. And I really, my hat is off to any woman who managed to do it. So for Su Ling, I mentioned earlier that she was born into a time of social and political transition. Right. And one of the characters in Chinatown, well, two of them, that we wish we could have written more about um, was a young woman named uh, Tai Liang, who was rescued from being, well, basically serfdom because she was sold as a bonded servant um, from China into San Francisco. But she eventually grew up, got um, educated at a missionary school and helped a, a woman named Donaldina Cameron, who was known as the white devil of Chinatown because Donaldina would go and like rescue girls, pull them out of brothels and, you know, bring them into protective custody in her mission house and, you know, find a safe way for them to live. Um, a lot of it involved, you know, being legally married to nice Chinese Christian men. Um, 
And but Tai Liang eventually grew up and became, I think, the first Chinese American um, federal civil servant. She used to do be a translator on Angel Island. So she she and Suling have something in common, which is that they were both born in America. They were like the first generation of mm-hmm. born in the USA Chinese Americans. So, you know, sort of like with one foot in the expectations of a lot of culture and tradition and another foot of knowing, you know, just getting that education, seeing that other women, um, white women could become teachers, could become nurses, could have careers, have more independence, um, not be married to someone who would treat her like, okay, concubine number one, here you go, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 They really, I, I mean, it, 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 I, I was bowled over by the, um, by the amount of challenges that were faced by women, um, in San Francisco's Chinatown at that time. I mean, it was, I think it was things I had known intellectually, but to read it and, and to read it from the perspective of Su Ling, I, I think just, um, really stopped me in my tracks. I, I thought, I thought that was really beautifully done. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. And one of the things I really wanted to do through Su Ling was to give, um, other characters in the book and therefore readers, a view of Chinatown as it was living with ordinary people, you know, because at the time the media portrayed Chinatown as being, you know, filled with dens of iniquities and brothels and opium dens and so on. Yes, there were, but there were also ordinary families raising children, you know, going off to work in the factories and coming home and having dinner and just ordinary, normal lives. It wasn't as sensational or as exoticized as um, the contemporary newspapers made it out to be. Well, and I I think you tackled that and addressed that really beautifully. Like, I think you really did give us a a good picture of just typical family life there. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that we both, that we talked about that we thought you both uh, did really well was your epilogue. You have an unusual epilogue in The Phoenix Crown, which does something many works of historical fiction don't, which is to give us a backward glance at how your characters' lives played out after the story. And the way you did that was so clever. Can you talk a little bit about how that epilogue came to be? Well, I'm trying to say this without spoilers, but there is a character in the book who is a painter. And we decided, uh, and we decided, you know, we we knew there was going to be an epilogue after the events of the book finished that will uh, give that little glimpse forward to, you know, how people go and how people, uh, what our characters do later on and how their lives turn out. Most uh, historical novels have that, but I thought that, you know, I, I think, I think I had the idea. I'm not entirely sure, but I kind of thought, okay, it was me. I had the thought because we'd been to a number of museums in San Francisco and you see these museum catalogs that will give you information on the, you know, the work that you're looking at. And I thought, well, I wonder if our painter character, you know, as an indication, because it was a little bit of a, a, a plot thread through the book, too, is how, will this painter ever begin to work again in a serious way? I thought, why not do a sort of retrospective of this painter's work later in life and show through paintings that were done exactly how each of the characters turned out? And so rather than have a scene where you look at the painters or you look at the characters and see where they all are, there's a painting of each of the uh, characters that have survived and have thrived by the end. And you see a little bit, little snapshot as it were of their life. 
in that time. And that allowed us not only to look at uh, the characters, but also at San Francisco, because, you know, the very last painting is a landscape of San Francisco as it is rebuilt. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I kind of kind of ran with it and just said, well, do you think this would work? And Janie liked it. So for me, we ended up keeping that in there. But it was a lot of fun in there because um, it was a you know, real visual way yeah. to get, a, a, get that, you know, scene of how everybody has done when the final events of the book are finished. Yeah, it, it was just the perfect ending, honestly. Yeah, I'm, I'm highly disappointed neither of you learned to paint. <laughs> so, I mean, you painted it. Yeah, no, that, you, that, painted uh, it with, you painted it with kids. Yeah, that's that's the limit of what I can do. Yeah, and you know, she's uh, as as Christian mentioned before, she's not a sharpshooter either. <laughs> no code breaker as, or anything like as, that. As far as we know, Janie. As far as we know, right? <laughs> Okay, Kate and Janie, thank you. They're going to, you're going to stick around, but we have a couple of quick announcements. Yeah, for all of you watching and li- watching and listening, now that you've had the pleasure of meeting Kate and Janie, we encourage you to rush out and buy your copies of The Phoenix Crown. The perfect place to do that is in the Friends and Fiction shop on bookshop.org. You'll be getting it at a discount and helping to fund our show, all while supporting our beloved independent booksellers nationwide. And we also want to remind you to follow us on Instagram and join our Facebook group that's nearly a quarter million members strong. When you visit friendsandfiction.com, you can stay abreast of upcoming Friends and Fiction show guests, in-person events. You can shop our merch store, order our book subscription box, and sign up for our weekly email newsletter, which is chock full of bonus content. To all of our viewers and listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. If you love the Friends in Fiction show, we hope you will leave a rating or review and remember to tell a friend. If you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you can catch all our back episodes, more than 200 of them, and you'll never miss a thing. And when you subscribe to our podcast, you can listen in your car, while you're cleaning, while you're grocery shopping, while you're working out, um, all the things that I'm woefully behind on this week. So it is like having Friends in Fiction in your pocket. You can take us with you wherever you go. That's right. Be sure to tune in next week for our live show for this month of February. All four friends, all friends, all four friends and fiction hosts and founders. That's a lot of It is. <laughs> Patty, Christy, Kristen, and I will welcome our featured author for the month of February, T. Williams, to discuss her new novel, The Friends and Fiction February Pick of the Month, a love song for Ricky Lake. That show will air live on the Friends in Fiction Facebook page and YouTube channel on Wednesday, February 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern. And then it'll be posted to our podcast for your listening pleasure on Friday, February 23rd. That was a tongue twister of a paragraph, Mary Kay. Lots and lots of yes. <laughs> yes. Before we let you go, Kate and Janie, I know you've both got a lot coming up this year. Can you fill us, can you fill us and our viewers in on what's coming next for you. So Kate, I know you have the Briar Club coming in July. And to those of you out there who have not seen the gorgeous cover yet, I hope you will take a moment to look for it because it is so pretty. I love it. So Kate, can you tell us a little bit about the Briar Club? 
Uh, yes, I, I, I decided I was being a real slacker and uh, one book a year wasn't enough. So I put out two this year in 2024. Oh, uh, that seemed like a good idea at the time. Sure. That's all I can say. <laughs> Some of it's beyond my control, honestly. But it is, uh, the Bright Club is all about an all-female uh, boarding house in Washington, D.C. in the early 1950s. And therefore, it is a big, deep dive into, you know, the whole era that has McCarthyism, the Red Scare, the Lavender Scare, uh, the Korean War, the Cold War, the end of the Women's World War II baseball leagues. There's so much there, so much grist. I can't wait for this book to hit shelves on July 9th. That's awesome. And now, Kate, you just live on the road, right? You, like, there's just no, there's no home anymore because you're just going to be on book tour for the entire year. Yeah, that's the idea. Although, fortunately, I already have uh, Tia Williams's new book on my Kindle to keep me company at the airport. So I'm very excited. Fantastic. Fantastic. How about you, Janie? What's up next for you? Well, I think I mentioned that yesterday I mailed in my draft of my next novel. It's called The Fourth Princess, and it will come out sometime in 2025. And it is a gothic novel set in pre-war Shanghai, because I've always loved gothic novels. And like Kate, you know, with the Phoenix Crown, I wanted to take it easy a little bit. And I've already done so much research on that era of Shanghai. I was hoping not to have to do too much and and uh, have some fun with it. So it is is um, the story of an American woman and a young Chinese woman, and they both move into this incredible mansion. The American woman is uh, married to a, to a millionaire, and the Chinese woman is her translator slash hired companion, and there are dark secrets to be uncovered. Ooh. Ooh, I'm intrigued. All right, Janie, finally, how can readers connect with you, with both of you on the road and online in the coming weeks? How can we find you? Oh my, so on both of our web pages, we have an event page, which we're keeping up to date as quickly as we know when the RSVP registration links come in. Um, so we've got a major tour that we're on this week um, that takes us from coast to coast. And then we have our Canadian tour, which is the last month, uh, last week of February. And I think Kate's basically on the road for all three weeks, right? Yep, unfortunately. But also fortunately, because I get to meet so many people on the road. Uh, that is worth any number of room service club Aww. salads and very limp Caesar salads. <laughs> we laugh because we know. <laughs> We've all been there. Yes. Well, that's actually one of the reasons we decided to write a book together is so we could book tour together and, oh, and have fun. more fun together and not have to trudge through airports on our own. Oh, I love that. Teamwork is the dream work. Makes the dream work, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. And we know that on Friends and Fiction. Anyway, yeah. thank you, Kate and Janie, for being with us on Friends and Fiction. Thanks to all of you out there for being with us, and we will see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for thank having you us. For inviting us. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.